Let's pray. Father, you sent Jesus, the first fruit of those raised from the dead. Lord, we believe, but like the song says, help us in our unbelief. Open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears as Pastor Shea reads over us your word, Father. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, Living Stones Church. How y'all doing this morning? Man, it is good to be with you guys. Uh, my name is Shay. I'm one of the pastors here at Living Stones. Uh, I don't get a chance to preach often, man, but when I do, uh, I always, like, I'm, I'm filled with joy. I, I get a chance to, uh, to just deliver to you what God says. And God has been prepping me all week long uh, to talk about this topic that this passage is talking about, and that is the resurrection. Uh, and I want to read you this, this quote I found as I was prepping for our sermon. It said this, during the Easter week of 1996, an amazing thing happened in the secular press. All three major news magazines, Time, Newsweek, U.S. News, and World Report, all depicted Jesus on the front cover. That year, the Christian celebration of the resurrection followed hard on the heels of a new wave of criticism leveled against the historicity of that central central biblical event. Kenneth Woodward's article in Newsweek entitled, Rethinking the Resurrection detailed the problem. He wrote, in their relentless search for the historical Jesus, various biblical scholars argue that the gospel stories of the empty tomb and Jesus' post-resurrection appearances are fictions devised long after his death to justify the claims of his divinity. To hear them tell it, the resurrection is an embarrassment to the modern mind and a a disservice to the itinerant Jewish preacher from rural Galilee. The resurrection is on trial for us today. As Christians, if I'm honest, we believe some crazy stuff, man. We got, we got a Jewish preacher out in the middle of nowhere. He starts talking about the coming of the Lord. And then he dies. He's put to death. Uh, stays in the grave for three days. And then three days later, uh, people start seeing him walking around. Yeah. <laughs> crazy, right? Here's the thing, though. The resurrection of, of, of Christ has been on trial ever since, quite frankly, the resurrection. The thing is, every truth claim the Bible makes, the reason the Bible is still so true for us today and demands our attention is because when Jesus was put to death, when he stayed in the grave for three days, he got up. Jesus is alive, church. Just like he said he would do. It wouldn't make sense for us to be Christians if it weren't for the resurrection of Christ. We would be wasting our time. But sometimes we overlook our need for this resurrection in our own lives. So whether it's contemplating Christ's resurrection or, or uh, recognizing the fact that we need to be made alive as well, we all have to ask ourselves this very important question. Has the resurrection changed you? That's the question we're going to be going after today. And to try to answer that question, we're going to establish why the resurrection was important, establish our need for this resurrection, and then look at how we all resist to, to, to this resurrection in some kind of way. So if you've been with us the last few months, you know we've been going through chapter by chapter through the book of Acts, right? Overall, the, the story of Acts is about God's work through the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to point the entire world to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. That's what the entire book of Acts is about. And in our passage today, it's the account of the Apostle Paul. We saw last week uh, that Paul got arrested, if you know Paul again, um, and now he's set to appear in court. 
But the motivation behind this passage comes from this line in Acts chapter 23, 11. And it says, uh, this is Jesus talking to Paul. It says, take courage, for as, I have, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Everything that's happened to Paul is because God wants the message of Jesus' resurrection to go to, Ro- to go to Rome, which at the time was the cultural hub of the entire known world. If the gospel can get to Rome, truly it can reach the entire world. So today we're going to look at chapters 24 through 26. Uh, Miss Melanie read uh, chapter 26, but we're going to be going through those three chapters because Paul is on trial before three different judges. We got Felix, we got Festus, and we got King Agrippa. Now, there are two ways to read this passage, right? Typically we read the Bible, we open it up, and we try to identify ourselves with the hero. And we say, like in this passage, we'd be like, man, yeah, it's really hard to minister to those kind of folks. I, I feel you, Paul, right? Typically, we try to enter ourselves into the story in the hero's shoes. But today, I want us to enter to the story in the antagonist's shoes. I want us to, to put ourselves in the shoes of the judges of this passage. So whether you're an unbeliever or somebody who's a skeptic, and you're here investigating the, claim, the claims of Christ, whether you're a person who uh, maybe have heard it before, but you're not ready to make that commitment yet, or whether you call yourself a believer, and, I, and I'm going to do this a lot, a believer who says, who says they love Christ, who says they submit to Christ, but you haven't given every single part of your life over to him yet. Wherever you are on that spectrum, we have to ask ourselves the question. And I want us to submit ourselves to the question this morning, has the resurrection changed you? Which leads me to my first point. We need a resurrection. Let's dive into the Bible. Acts chapter 24, verse 1. It says, and after... Five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullius, and they laid before the governor their case against Paul. So the high priest comes into the courtroom. He's got the old school Johnny Cochran with him, right? They just kind of roll up. I'm sorry. I'm on this OJ kick right now. Y'all got to forgive me. But they're ready to stomp out this whole Christianity thing and Paul thing once for all. It's been a thorn in their side for a long time. They're, They're sick of it, right? And so Tortelius, he comes in, and he's a, this high-powered attorney, and he's ready. Uh, he just starts opening his, his opening remarks, just blowing smoke, blowing smoke at, at, uh, at Felix. You know how lawyers do, right? They got that lawyer talk. Anyway, obviously you guys have never been to court. <laughs> so they start laying down their, their charges against Paul, right? And look at verse 5. It says, uh, we have found this man to be a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining yourself, you'll be able to find out from him everything which we now accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were true. And so in these accusations, Tertullius is actually attempting to compare Paul to a zealot. And, and back in that day, a zealot was, uh, basically they were a group of guys, they were like a Jewish gang. They were just go around causing all kind of trouble all around the area. And Felix, as the governor, spent a good portion of his administration trying to squash these guys. And a lot of times, really cruelly and really decisively. Basically, the charge that they were charging Paul with was a charge of sedition, which, for the Romans, they would not have taken that lightly. They would squash any beef against the Pax Romana or the peace of Rome by any means necessary. And they took that seriously. 
The charge of desecrating the temple, though, that was just a big misunderstanding. They thought Paul was bringing a Gentile into the temple, which for them would have been a capital crime. And, and if I can for a minute, I, I, need, to, I need to do a soapbox moment. All right, y'all, y'all stick with me. I wish people would accuse us of this every now and then. I wish people would accuse us of being a plague. That the message of Christ was so emulate from us that as we go out into culture, it just it becomes infectious to everybody around us. I wish they would accuse us of being a plague. I wish they would accuse us of being rebel rousers. That everywhere we go, as culture tried to tell us things and, and get us to believe a certain way, we would buck against that system. I wish we would. Right now, we just kind of go with the flow. I wish we would be like Paul and be awakened to the glories of Christ. Be mesmerized by what Jesus has done. As we, as we sing about that God is good all the time, we just, oh, I wish we would. God, help us. Help us to make you famous, God. Anyway, that's my soapbox moment. And so, Paul's on trial. Tertullius got his charges that he's bringing up. And so Felix gives Paul a chance to tell his side. And Paul says, man, I've only been in town for like 12 days. I don't know what you're talking about. He says, now, if you ask the folks back in Asia, maybe they might hide some stuff, but they, they just saw me here worshiping. But he says, verse 14, he says, but this one thing I do confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men accept, themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience, both toward God and man. He says, they don't have anything on me. Verse 21 says, other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But see, Felix had heard about this whole Christianity and Christianity thing before. Maybe it's because his wife was Jewish. Historically, his wife was Jewish. Or maybe because he had heard about one of his predecessors. Uh, You guys remember the name Pontius Pilate. Maybe he heard that story before. I don't know. Whatever it is, he puts off his decision for Christ and keeps Paul in prison for another two years. All the while, Paul is preaching Christ to him him and his wife and talking to them about things like righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And then verse 27 says, uh, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Church, we need a resurrection. And recognition and response of this resurrection is needed because there's a judgment coming. Paul tells Felix that a resurrection will happen, and when it does, there will be a judgment of both the innocent and the guilty. That's what just and unjust means. It seems like Paul had this conversation with Felix for like two years. Two two years he had this conversation. I have my com- a conversation with my kid for like 20 minutes. I'm ready to like blow a gasket. <laughs> y'all, y'all parents know what I'm talking about. Two years, conversation after conversation, he's talking to him about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And Felix is nervous because he knows he's not living a life that's in line with what Paul's describing. History knows this man as Marcus Antonius Felix, infamous for his greed and his... his um, his promiscuousness, and his cruelty. He loved his sin, right? Just like some of us still do. He didn't want to give his sin up. 
He listened to Paul describe the ramifications of living a very uncensored and explicit lifestyle, and he was convicted about his bloodthirstiness and sexual exploits. But he kept delaying and procrastinating what he knew to be right and true in his heart. Do you know anybody like that? Maybe that's you. Keep delaying and denying the fact that you need a resurrection too. There's this quote by this guy. Uh, he's pretty tall, big bushy beard, wear a big tall top hat. Abraham Lincoln, maybe you guys, for those of you who didn't skip school. Anyway, he said this. You cannot escape the responsibility of tomorrow by evading it today. And if I were to put that in, in line with what we're talking about today, you cannot escape the ramifications of the resurrection by procrastinating your submission to the gospel today, not tomorrow. Felix is known in history as a man of wicked actions, and he was convicted by the message of the coming judgment that his deeds were keeping him away from this righteous life that Paul was describing. He knew that what he did with his hands needed to change. Listen, I would be remiss as your pastor if I didn't urge all of you to take Felix's mistakes to heart. Now, I know we're a Reformed church that believes in the sovereignty of God, and, and God, you can't, you can't do anything unless God changes your heart first. I get that. I understand. But some of you have been using God's sovereignty as a crutch when what you really need to do is stop sinning and turn to Christ. Amen. Stop it. And this isn't a new concept in the Bible. Matthew 3, uh, John the Baptist was talking about this too when he, when he was preaching down at the riverbed and he saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming down to him. He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit and keep them with repentance. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We need a resurrection because there is a judgment coming. And the only way to get an innocent verdict is if you believe in Jesus and he ends up vouching for you. There's no way for us to bear good fruit on our own. We need Jesus' good fruit. And this is not just for the unbelievers and the not yet. This is for the believers too, who have called on the name of Christ for salvation, but have not let Christ into every area of their lives. Heed this warning, church. The resurrection makes the coming judgment an impending, impending reality. We need this resurrection. Has it changed you? Which leads me to my next point. Do you know your need for the resurrection? Let's look at uh, chapter 25. I'm going through this fast, by the way. Chapter 25, verse 1. It says, Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, so I was talking to Pastor Gavin about this, uh, about this passage, and he describes Festus like the ancient Judge Judy. You guys, ever, you guys ever watch that show? Do you guys know who Pastor Gavin is? If, if you can picture that, that's the conversation we had. Anyway, she's a mean lady, right? All she wants is the facts. Don't tell me about your emotionalism. I don't care about your children. Just give me your facts. And Festus was just like this. I just, I just want the facts and how to keep you in line with the law. He didn't care about your emotions other than that. He's highly intellectual. For the most part, as history would tell it, he's a pretty upstanding guy. But he's into politics, right? 
Anybody who's into politics will tell you, you almost always end up owing people favors. So he goes in, he comes into his administration, he meets with all the bigwigs down in Jerusalem, and he's, he's playing this political game, right? right? And he finds out that the Jews are still trying to murk Paul for like two years. I'm sorry, murder. That was really slang. They're trying to murder Paul for like two years. But he puts them off and tells them to come up to the courthouse and they'll handle things up there, right? Skip down to verse 7. It says, when Paul had arrived in court, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him that they could not prove. And Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. Uh-oh. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not wish to, I don't seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, nobody can give me up to them. I am an innocent man. You know what? I appeal to Caesar. This is the part in Judge Judy where they would have gone to commercial break and the music goes, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> appeal to Caesar? Are you serious? And the reason this is so jaw-dropping, right, is because the Caesar he's appealing to is Nero. And if you guys know anything about Roman history, Nero was probably one of the most notorious and, and just all-around bad guys throughout Roman history. And that's saying something. Paul is definitely not trying to escape death by appealing to Caesar. There's probably a good chance Nero would have killed him just for wasting his time. And so Festus honors his request and prepares, prepares him from Rome. And then a few days later, King Agrippa and his sister come to town and they want to hear from Festus about this whole Paul thing. And so Paul says, well, tomorrow you guys will hear more about him. Here's the question I'll pose to you. Do you know your need for the resurrection? You see, Festus was a guy who had no inclinations toward Jesus at all. Not, not toward the resurrection, not to any of that stuff. Festus, a.k.a. Porcius Festus, was for the most part just a simple politician. And as Paul is describing his position on the resurrection of Christ, the only response that Festus has is one of intellectualism and political positioning. For Festus, there was a true separation of church and state. If you're here today because someone brought you and this is your first time hearing about all this stuff, man, welcome. We so appreciate you guys being here, really and truly, that you would come and spend time with us and hear us talk about this, this guy, Jesus, who uh, lived a normal life and died and then got back up. I know, it's, it's really weird. So, welcome. Appreciate you being here. But here's the thing. The Bible tells us that all of us, prior to knowing who Jesus was, were essentially the walking dead. Alive in, in a natural way, but nothing really going on inside of us. Completely spiritually dead on the inside. But when Christ made the resurrection a reality and he exercised his power as God in the flesh the, over, the, over the power that sin had, over the power that death had, excuse me, he proved himself to be God. He made it to where all those who believe in him can be like him and have life within them. Look what it says in, in Ephesians 2. It says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of the world. But God, man, I get excited. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace that you've been saved. That is the great news of the gospel. But Festus couldn't hear that, right? Because he was dead on the inside, and dead people don't respond to things that are alive. I'm telling you, it would be a weird day if you go to the cemetery and saw everybody doing a thriller routine. <laughs> nope. Dead people don't respond to, to things that are alive. He had no clue about the life-giving message Paul was describing. He had a veil over his face that he couldn't see the truth. But like 2 Corinthians 3 says, but when one turns to the Lord, that veil is removed. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Amen. Intellectualism and political positioning are not everlasting and they will not save you. There's some people like Festus that would say, if I can just do my job well. Be the smartest person in the room. Know and meet the right people. Then I could be somebody. There's some people like Festus that would say, if I can just be a nice dude and definitely better than that dude, then I'll be okay. Or if I can, if I can just like manage to not drink too much, maybe I'll be okay. There's some people that say, about, they say, like Festus, I don't need to hear about that religious nonsense and that sci-fi like resurrection stuff. I live in the real world and that stuff is crap. To those people, I would say, ask God if he's real. Ask him to reveal himself. Ask him if this stuff is true to, to change your mind about it. Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what's good and acceptable and perfect. You have to have your mind changed, your way of thinking, of processing the world, of rationalizing and intellectualizing. Your whole entire worldview needs to be shifted. The veil lifted from your eyes so that you can see the resurrection is not part of some bad sci-fi movie. It's a necessary requirement for an eternal life spent with God. You must be born again, resurrected from death, conformed to a new image. But there's some of us, and really if I'm honest, probably all of us, who resist and reject this need for a resurrection. Which leads me to my last point. We have a resistance to the resurrection. Verse 23 says, still in chapter 25. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. So back in the day, I used to watch Soul Train, right? Y'all remember, remember what Soul Train is? Like you have two people on either side, and they, they come like walking down the Soul Train line. and they, it was, That was hot, man. I'm telling you. That's what, this, that's what this reminds me of. It says, they entered the, the audience hall with great pomp, and they've got the, the, the trumpets blaring, and people are all dressed up, and they've got the military commanders there, and all the prominent people of the city, and, and they're just like coming down the line, everybody uh, just celebrating King Agrippa and Bernice, right? And so they bring Paul in, and Festus gives his introduction and says, he hopes that people in attendance can help him with what to write about Paul's case, because with, with Festus, like he's just, this is, this, is a, this is a religious matter. Like I'm I have, I have no jurisdiction here, right? 
And so then Paul launches into his testimony. He talks about his life growing up and being a Pharisee and uh, persecuting Christians until Christ himself appears before him and regenerates his heart. And it's here we see how Jesus' encouragement in Acts chapter 23 uh, lets Paul see how God has been orchestrating Paul's story the entire time, putting him in positions where Paul was getting beat up, like, regularly, <laughs> bitten by snakes, shipwrecked. All these things were happening to Paul, but God has been orchestrating his story this entire time. And how the resurrection has played such an integral part in his salvation story. And so jump down to uh, chapter 26, verse 6. We'll pick it up there. It says, uh, this is Paul talking. He says, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made to God, made by God to our fathers. To which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they, excuse me, earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? This is for us too, by the way. For those who say, there's no way God can change me. I'm way too messed up. God can do it. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God can raise the dead? For those who say, I, I don't really need that. I know who Jesus is. I've been to church all my life. Bro, you need it. Trust me. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God needs to raise the dead? So Paul's in his story, right? And, and he, he describes Jesus talking to him. And Jesus tells uh, Paul that he's redirecting his life for a particular purpose. Go down to verse 16. Jesus says, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul says he got to work, preaching throughout the region, telling people about about God and that they need to repent and to, to continue to do good because they have been saved, not to get saved, but because they are saved. Do good works. All the while, he's staying faith, faithful to his understanding of the resurrection. Go down to verse 23. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he will proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, man, you are crazy. What are you talking about? You are in your books too much? But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for it's not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And here it is. Here's the decisive moment for the entire passage. This is the moment where not only Agrippa, but everybody else in attendance can stop resisting God and turn to God. And this is the moment for us too. Are you an unbeliever? Do you, do you know who Christ is? This is your moment that you can accept Christ right now. Are you, are you a not yet? Have you, have you heard about these things? Maybe you come to this church week after week, but there's something that's holding you back. Today is that day. You can accept Christ today. 
Are you a person who's a believer that comes to church and maybe is a member of this church and maybe he's even been a Christian for the last 20 years, but there's still some sins that you're like, man, but I like doing that. Today is the day that you can be resurrected from those things. They're killing you. Allow Christ to resurrect all of you, not just the really bad parts. But let's see how Agrippa responds. Verse 28. And Agrippa said to Paul, in such a short time do you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you but everybody else that's in here might become such as I am. Except for the chains. Then the king rose and the governor, Bernice, and all those who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. What just happened? (laughs) Paul's argument was so sound. How could this man who was known as a a devout Jew not respond to Paul's argument that, that Yes, you believe in the Old Testament prophets, and guess what? Christ is the fulfillment of everything they were talking about. How could you not see it? Agrippa answers with the response that I think most of us have, whether we like to admit it or not. And it's, what can the gospel and this resurrection thing do for me? In that moment, though, we're revealing that at our core, we would rather rebel against God and what he has for us. We reveal in that moment that what actually matters and what's most important to us is ourselves, or as I like to call it, this religion of selfism. Agrippa heard the testimony of Paul, maybe even saw his logic, saw that it was good, and and saw how the, the scriptures connected to each other, but because it might override his primary religion of selfism, he decided to delay his response and ultimately reject God's offer of salvation. Agrippa lived a life that was centered around worshiping himself. You see how he came down the soul train line when he was coming in? You know, it's how he he responded to Paul. You don't expect me to be a Christian so fast, do you? You saw how he just stood up at the end of the meeting and just just walked out of the courtroom because he wanted to save face in front of the people who were there. God forbid he make a decision in front of everybody that's there in attendance that he believed and wanted to surrender his life to Christ. Does that sound familiar to you? Do you do the same thing? Do you say to yourself, as long as Christianity doesn't require anything of me, I can follow it, but I gotta be me. For some of us, that's exactly what we say. When the Bible says that the sexually immoral would not inherit the kingdom, you say, but I love him. And we're going to get married one day. When the pastor gets up on stage and starts preaching from the Bible and says that gossip is murder, you say, man, that was a good sermon, but uh, that doesn't apply to me. So-and-so should be here to hear that one. They need it. For real, for real though. When the Bible says not to forsake the fellowship of the saints, you forsake the fellowship of the saints because you got something better to do. Ooh. That one might have hurt. Agrippa couldn't respond to the truths of the resurrection because he needed a heart change. The things he loved in his life vastly overpowered his need for a risen Christ. He needed a heart transplant, and thankfully, the Bible says that God gives us the very thing we need in order order to respond to Christ. Listen to what God promises us in Ezekiel 36. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. 
and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a soft heart of flesh. That's God promised to you. That's the good news of the gospel, that God knows our limitations, knows we can't respond to Christ on our own, and yet graciously and mercifully gives us the resurrection we need to turn toward Christ. Our job is to stop rejecting Christ, turn to him. God's job is to change us. The resurrection of Christ changes everything. Has it changed you? Look at what Romans 6 says, or listen to what Romans 6 says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in God and Jesus Christ. Now listen, whether you're listening to this as a believer, an unbeliever, or somebody who's not yet, the application is the same to all. Allow the resurrection to change everything about you your thoughts, your deeds, the things you care about and love. Our response to the resurrection should be like what Jesus told Paul back in uh, verses 16 and 18 in chapter 26. He said that I'm going to change you to be a servant, doing the will of God, allowing God to change what you do with your hands. He said that I'm going to save you and change you so that you could be a witness, telling people about what God did for you, allowing God to change our minds and how we view and see the world. I'm going to change you so that you can, be, you can function as a priest, helping the world to open their eyes to the glory of Christ and allowing the resurrection to change our hearts. There are people right now out on the street that are going to hell because they don't know who Christ is. Do you care? Allow the resurrection to change your heart. You see, what really divides us from the world is what we believe about Jesus. The world would say that Jesus was a good man, a moral teacher, a wise sage. But if Jesus raised himself from the dead, then all the claims about his divinity are vindicated. He is God in the flesh. He is Lord of all. There's no disputing it. The resurrection isn't a fabricated story. It isn't an embarrassment to the modern mind. It isn't a disservice to who Jesus is. It is the power of God on full display to the world that needs a resurrection. The point of the story is not Paul's testimony or how people should or shouldn't respond to the gospel. It is the account of how God orchestrates Paul's journey to Rome, ultimately the gospel to the world, and ultimately the resurrection story in Sparks, Nevada, and to you. It's the account of how Christ wakes us up and makes us alive and guides us in the way we should go. Will you allow the resurrection to change everything about you? Or will you ignore and procrastinate your need for a resurrection? Or will you be like Paul 
and be completely changed by the resurrection, allowing the truths of the gospel to penetrate into every aspect of your life and allowing Christ to lead you. My prayer is for the latter. I pray that you would submit to Christ today. Don't wait. You can call out to him right now. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. Call out to him. Jesus changed me. The resurrection didn't change these three men. It's too late for them. But it's not too late for you. Whether you're a professing Christian or you're just hearing this for the first time, the need is the same for all. All of us need to be made alive in Christ. And that's exactly what the resurrection does for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you uh, decided to leave your heavenly throne, uh, come down to a place that would despise and reject you, and yet with love you put yourself in harm's way, died for us just like you told us you would do, rose again from the grave, and then proclaimed your power over sin and death. Man, God, we need you. There are some parts of us that are, that are dead and rotting. We need you to wake us up. God, be with us. Be with, be with our message this morning. Be with us in your resurrection because it is because of that that we get a chance to see you face to face. Lord, be with us. Wake us up, Lord. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.